I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times on Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending March 11th. Oddly enough, there is no Nobel Prize for Engineering. The greatest recognition for engineers, then, is the IEEE Medal of Honor. The list of recipients is a roll call of some of the most distinguished innovators in electronics history, including Robert Noyce, Leo Asaki, Latfizade, Bob Metcalf, Morris Chang, and this year, the IEEE Medal of Honor was bestowed upon Asad Madni. We're honored to have as our guest today the 2022 IEEE Medal of Honor recipient, Asad Madni. Madney is lauded for developing the first microelectromechanical-based gyroscope and inertial measurement unit. This MEMS device has been important for keeping steady things that really should not be unstable, from automobiles that are profoundly safer because they are now so much less prone to roll over, to the Hubble telescope, which required absolute stillness to capture so many breathtaking images of the universe for so long. We'll hear about all that and more in our interview with Asad Madni in a moment, right after we run down some of the news we covered in EE Times this week. Internet traffic has been skyrocketing and the rate of growth shows no signs of slowing down. As a consequence, Data center operators must perpetually upgrade their facilities. They understandably want to make the endless upgrades as painless as possible, and there's a well-known technique for doing that. If you make sure that inputs and outputs behave the same, you can perform all of your innovation inside of boxes. Now, that's how data center operators plan to handle the evolution to photonic systems, which will naturally transmit more data faster. The shorthand phrase for that trend is co-packaging optics, or CPO. This week, we focus on the CPO trend and review a demonstration of the technology from optics specialist Ranavis in collaboration with its customer, AMD Xilinx. EE Times correspondent Alan Patterson has been following the CHIPS Act, the proposal by the U.S. to heal its semiconductor supply chain by reshoring chip manufacturing. Success will hinge on doing more than just subsidizing more IC fabs, however, and right now, the U.S. has no such plans. Evaluating the potential for success, or failure, of rebuilding the semiconductor supply chain in the pages of EE Times this week. Norway has the highest adoption rate in the world of battery electric vehicles, or BEVs. That was a point GM had some fun with last year in a Super Bowl commercial starring Will Ferrell. Did you know that Norway sells way more electric cars per capita than the U.S.? Norway. (laughs) Well, I won't stand for it. This week, our intrepid automotive expert, Egil Juliusen, explains why Norway is leading the world here. I am sure this is a complete coincidence, but Egil just revealed to us that he himself is Norwegian. Anyway, find all of these stories and more on the website at eetimes.com. If you're on this episode's webpage already, there are links directly to the articles I just mentioned. Also, remember you can sign up for EE Times newsletters. Our daily includes breaking news, and we also have several newsletters dedicated to specific coverage areas. 
Just find the button on the top of our homepage that says subscribe. We're pleased to have as our guest today the 2022 IEEE Medal of Honor recipient, Asad Madni. His medal citation reads, For pioneering contributions to the development and commercialization of innovative sensing and systems technologies and for distinguished research leadership. That's an incredibly succinct way of putting it, yes. Madney has nearly 70 patents issued or pending, and he's written over 150 peer-reviewed articles. He's perhaps best known for his innovative MEMS gyroscope. It's the heart of stability systems in many critical items, including passenger vehicles and aircraft. That innovation was only one highlight. Madney has been and still remains at the forefront of intelligent sensor and system design. He is currently Distinguished Adjunct Professor and Distinguished Scientist with the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department at the University of California, Los Angeles. You are quite famous for contributions to the development of of stabilizing technology, particularly what's called the gyro chip. And Rather than have me try to explain it, it would probably be best if I asked you to do so. I'd be glad to. Um, Let me start by saying that the advent of truly low-cost, very highly producible inertial sensors with no known wear out had been a goal of the industry for many years. Uh, my company, BEI's division, the Sistron Down Inertial Division, had a quartz rate sensor technology that we referred to as the QRS. Later, it was known as the microgyro and subsequently as the gyro chip could actually satisfy this requirement. Let me explain very simply how it works. It is based on a vibrating quartz tuning fork to sense angular velocity. By using the Coriolis effect, a rotational motion about the sensor's longitudinal axis produces a DC voltage proportional to the rate of rotation. The concept of using a vibrational element to measure rotation velocity by employing the Coriolis principle has been around for decades. In fact, the idea actually developed out of the observation that a certain species of fly uses a pair of vibrating antenna to stabilize its flight. This sensing technique has been the inspiration behind the practical embodiment of the QRS. Uh, The Coriolis force is generated by, to explain it for the audience, by an object as it resists being pulled from its plane of vibration. Because the quartz is piezoelectric, changes in the forces generated show up as changes in electrical charge, And then these changes can be analyzed and converted into angular velocity. So that's a simple explanation of the fundamental principle. Was there a a special insight or innovation or a a clever manufacturing technique that allowed you to develop uh, the specific product that you ended up with? That's a good question. Uh, Actually, all the principles theoretically were in place, but Mm -hmm. the practical embodiment is where the real challenge was. Uh, The tuning fork sensing element was made out of monocrystalline piezoelectric quartz, 
while all the electronics was in an application-specific integrated circuit silicon chip. <laughs> and the reason for that was quartz simply had better stability and performance in terms of signal-to-noise ratio than silicon. Though it could be manufactured using similar process to those of the manufacturing silicon chips, etched via wafer processing, photolithography, etc., mm-hmm. this quartz tuning fork could not be created on the same wafer as the silicon circuitry, adding an extra assembly step. Right. But that was a small price to pay. What made the gyro chip better than what was available at the time? A, it had no contacting parts, hence no wear out, dramatically improving reliability. Mm-hmm. B, much smaller size. And C, much lower cost since it could be batch processed. So it represented a totally disruptive technology for its time and uh, something that the industry was actually looking for. And if you're interested, I can go into, you know, the challenges that we, we faced uh, as we go along. Oh, that's all the fun. What were the challenges? Well, Brian, let me just first say that this technology is referred to as MEMS, micro-electromechanical right. systems, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And this was much more than a refinement of techniques. While the semiconductor industry manufacturing processes of deposition, etching, and masking, and so on, were used for batch processing and production, a MEMS device offers very significant challenges. For example, let's just consider something. Even the most complex computer chip contains active and passive devices within them, right? Such as transistors, diodes, rectifiers, capacitors, inductors, resistors, etc. MEMS, by contrast, contain not only the active and passive devices for the circuitry, but they actually include dynamic devices. The dynamic devices, such as the tuning fork, are physically moving, creating an entirely new set of manufacturing challenges. And it is for this reason that the maturation of processes for men's devices took a long time. Once these challenges were overcome, men's became one of the most ubiquitous technologies in use for numerous applications, ranging from aerospace and defense to automotive, medical, industrial, communications, and consumer electronics. Today, any piece of electronics that you have or you're carrying in your pocket does indeed have a men's device. So that's actually quite a fascinating uh, uh, subject. Uh, integrated circuitry was uh, planar then, and and the industry is going through great effort to make sure that it's plain, mostly planar still. Um, that seems like an unusual approach if you're going to stick something that's moving or build something that could move into a planar construction. Was well, that part of the difficulty? Well, yes, that is. And so, therefore, there are different processes. Today, uh, instead of quartz, you know, technology has matured over the last 30 years, and now you have the same very same type of sensors in silicon because they have reached that level of maturity. Mm-hmm. So their processes are different. They have like 
you know, bulk processing and surface micromachining uh, and uh, deep Rion uh, active. That's Rion now. That's now. How about at the time? At the time, we were the pioneers. I mean, we were using the available application-specific integrated circuit technology that was state-of-the-art, and that was, you know, standard processes, and building separate quartz uh, forks and implementing them on that. One of the things that I think I should mention is, remember, this is a mass-based device. Yeah. So to get a signal-to-noise ratio, because you're, you're detecting this Coriolis force, the, the level of the signal that you get, the signal-to-noise is dependent on the size of the fork, right? The sensing element. Mm -hmm. And this was another very big challenge, because as we went through reducing the size of this tuning fork from uh, aerospace and defense, which was really pretty large size, yeah. a couple of inches or more, down to something that was just a few grams and a very, very small thing, smaller than your finger, small fingernail, uh, we had to go through some tremendous innovations in terms of reducing, physically reducing the fork size and actually increasing its performance, which is quite contrary to a normal theoretical thought process. So we had some very, you know, outstanding innovations and that kept us, um, you know, in the forefront of the technology uh, with reference to aerospace and defense, which was the first part. And then, of course, we'll go to the automotive side. Uh, did you have um, patrons or cust potential customers lining up uh, to, um, uh, to back this technology? Were, were, the, were your aerospace comp uh, and, and military customers Yes. already eager and prepared to use it yes. basically the question is who were your first customers and 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 how did you expand from there okay so uh initially we wanted to introduce this as a disruptive technology for our customer base which was the aerospace and defense sector <laughs> where bei system donor inertial division had its primary customers and they loved it when we started building this, and remember, you, you have to understand this was in small quantities because this is aerospace and defense market. It's not mm -hmm. a consumer market. And it found excellent, excellent acceptance, uh, initially in highly classified programs and subsequently on major A&D programs. I mean, this was from UAVs, helicopters, missiles, aircrafts, you know, all the aerospace and defense sectors. Mm -hmm. And while we were sitting fat, dumb, and happy and enjoying our, our uh, customers' graciousness, the Berlin Wall came down. And just like all other aerospace and defense companies, we all had to pay the price of peace. And the A&D sector business started declining very, very rapidly. And we had to do some real soul searching because here we were sitting on this tremendous technology, which nobody else had. And the market sector for which it was designed was collapsing right in front of our eyes. So we had a choice, either you know, stick our head in the sands and let nature take its course or do something about it. And after a lot of soul searching and intense marketing studies, we decided that there was a tremendous opportunity in the automotive market for electronic stability control and rollover prevention where they were looking for angular rate sensors to prevent the accidents that were taking place uh, due to uh, 
electronic skid as well as rollover. And remember, you know, braking systems, anti-lock braking systems, when they came out, uh, everybody knew that they were doing some good for us, but there were never any theoretical data showing how many lives it had saved. Mm. Whereas as far as electronic, you know, spin out and rollovers, those theoretical data and practical data that had been taken showing how many deaths there were being caused. So here was a market. The challenge was we had no experience in this market, <laughs> but we had a technology that could address this market. And that was a very bold and major move that I had to take uh, together with our chairman at BEI to pursue this market. My recollection, if I, if I recall the time frame correctly, my recollection was that there, the, the, the market for sport utility vehicles was new, and there were a couple of manufacturers with models that became notorious for rolling over. Did, uh, is that the same time frame? Did, did, that, uh, did that secular trend um, help in any way as you, yes, as you tried to? Yeah. Uh, yes, it did. You're, and you're absolutely correct, Brian, because, uh, well, remember, the, these sensors that we transformed to go for electronic stability and rollover prevention, mm -hmm. uh, just first let me give you by way of background. A single axis angular sensor for aerospace and defense would go anywhere from $1,200 to $1,800. A full inertial measurement unit that had full six degrees of freedom, meaning three of these sensors, three accelerometers, and full circuitry could go in several thousands. And with GPS augmented, it could go up to 100,000. But our challenge here was, and the highest, by the way, the highest number of sensors we had sold for aerospace and defense was about 10,000 a year for a classified program. Okay. Now to transfer that to the automotive market, where we would have to start shipping very quickly, ramping up from 3,000 a month to millions a, mo a month, was a tremendous task. And to bring the cost down to $100, then to $50, and then to $25 in a very short period of time. But remember, this goes, it's part of the braking system and this yaw, it's called a yaw sensor. This angular sensor is called a yaw sensor. It sits towards the middle front of the car. And what it's detecting is detecting the, uh, it is detecting the lateral movement of the car. Mm. And so that becomes the behavior of the car. And with how the driver applies the brake or how the driver turns the steering wheel, you get the information, the direction in which the driver is trying to turn, how fast, how much, how much pressure is being applied due to torque, which becomes the intent of the driver. And the computer compares the intent of the driver versus the behavior of the car, and in real time takes control of the brakes and applies the brakes in such a manner that it prevents this fishtailing, which then eventually leads to rollover. So. So the first, uh, our biggest customer, we had many customers, but the biggest customer when we went into the automotive market was Continental Tevis. Continental Tevis and Bosch were the two largest brake manufacturers. Bosch was, uh, Bosch was developing their own silicon-based approach to the, their sensor. Continental Tevis teamed up with us and they were using our sensors. The very first cars to introduce it uh, was actually the G General Motors Stability Track System. 
It was launched on the Cadillacs and the Corvettes. Mm-hmm. And then what happened, uh, Brian, coming to your point, which is, which is a very, very important event. Uh, you know, they have these uh, newspaper editors, such as yourself, uh, that do uh, research on cars and do test driving on cars. Well, mm-hmm. one of them took, I think it was a Mercedes, if I'm not mistaken, an SUV on the Autobahn in Germany and did what is called an elk maneuver test. Elk maneuver test is where you make very acute turns simulating the condition of an elk moving up on the Autobahn. Well, when he made this acute turn, the car rolled over. And that created a very sensational effect. Mm-hmm. There was I think Mercedes recalled their cars for retrofitting. Peach, I remember, was running Volkswagen, and he decided that he wanted every single car, every single VW, to have electronic stability control and rollover prevention. And while this was going on, we had barely learned, barely learned how to produce these sensors in smaller sizes. We were trying to put in our automation in place, innovations in designs, breakthroughs in manufacturing. Our customer came and said, well, from the few thousands a month, we want hundreds of thousands a month. And don't tell us you can't do it. Tell us what does it take to get there? <laughs> so essentially, we, were, we hadn't even learned how to walk, but we had started to run now. And uh, so this is where the real break came and the market just exploded worldwide. And the, our chairman, Charles Crocker, and I both uh, you know, were very active in lobbying on Capitol Hill to make sure that ESP and rollover, the ESP system especially, uh, got mandated for all cars, and eventually we were successful. And I have to tell you that we had, uh, we had uh, uh, you know, a lot of cars on our backs. Uh, we had to do several things. Uh, first of all, having come from the aerospace and defense sector, uh, we had become victims of our own successes. And when we decided we were going to go into the aerospace and defense market, I had a long talk with our engineers. All of them had grown up with me pretty much. And they said, well, we've done, you know, more complex systems than the aerospace, I mean, the automotive can ever demand. I said, yes, you have. But right now what we have to do is we've got to develop these things with not one additional cent of cost. You have to design to cost because the automotive industry is totally unforgiving. There is no loyalty here. Somebody <laughs> gives them the thing for two cents less, you're done for. So you have to design to cost. And some people accepted that challenge, some did not. It, there was a hubris that had set up. And eventually I had to get these people, said, I'll, I'll provide you the proper training. I will send you to Switzerland to learn how to handle quartz from watch manufacturers. We will get automotive experts to talk about the quality assurance systems, which, by the way, were far, far more demanding than aerospace and defense, contrary to what we had thought. Ah. Well, some of the engineers agreed and others out of the hubris uh, were reluctant. And at that point, I had to take a very major decision and pretty much put my job on the line, and which was to tell them that just the way an individual can outgrow a company, a company can outgrow an individual as well. And I had to let them go. I was questioned mm-hmm. by the board of directors for that meeting, even though I was on the board of directors, being the president and chief operating officer. Mm. But after we were successful, and with a lot of scars on our backs, 
uh, we became the largest supplier of your sensors for the automotive industry. And at that point, those that had left wanted to come back, and my question to them was why? So that gives you an idea of what we went through. Uh, it, was a, it was a remarkable uh, defense conversion story. As I said, in spite of the scars on our backs, we paid the price, but it was a truly successful defense conversion story. CNN, CNN featured me on their shows from sorts to plowshares. Biz News One uh, featured me. I mean, you know, everybody got really excited about this technology. So we were the pioneers. We were the trailblazers. And now, of course, there are a lot of people in the market. But I'll tell you this much, while achieving this process, while going through this defense conversion, I would have to tell you that this was one of the most unexpected and gratifying applications because to invent and commercialize technology that is pivotal in saving human lives all around the world on an ongoing basis was truly a great personal reward for those of us who gave it all we had. And so it was, it was a great experience. I'm fascinated about how that eventually got you to uh, participation in in contributing uh, technology to the Hubble Space Telescope, and I'm particularly interested in a in a line that that I found intriguing and that as a non-engineer I can't help but wonder about um, the Hubble Space the Hubble Space Telescope. Had uh, had the quartz MEMS gyro chip. I will give you a full explanation on that. Okay. Okay. So first of all, to answer your first question, how did we get into it? BEI Technologies, which was listed on NASDAQ, mm -hmm. was the company. Charles Crocker was the chairman. I was the president, chief operating officer, and the chief technical officer. Now, under us, we had about thirteen companies. The MEMS part was the Cistron Donor Inertial Division. Mm -hmm. I came from the Cistron Donor side. I was the chairman, president, and CEO of Cistron Donor. And we had a, the major assets of Cistron Donor, which was owned by the British giant Thorny MI, uh, was disposed of when the defense budget started to decline. Mm -hmm. And Charles Crocker of BI Electronics and I worked together and uh, BI Electronics acquired the major assets of Cistron Donor, including the Cistron Donor Inertial Division and three other divisions. And the joint company became BEI Technologies, Inc. So under us, the Cistron Donor Inertial Division is the one that was in the MEMS area and the inertial navigation. We had another company which was strictly in position sensors. We had another company that was in industrial encoders. We had another company that was in the uh, uh, motors and actuator business, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. We had a total of 13 companies here and a couple in, uh, one in France, one in, uh, two in UK. But we had one division that was called the Pre Precision Systems and Space Division that was based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And this division specialized in absolutely the high-end the highest resolution optical encoders. As you know, a simple encoder is a device that, you know, let's say you've got an LED and you've got these slots and as it goes through, you count the number of pulses and so you know how much it has been rotated and at what speed it's rotating. Absolute encoders are ones where you have multiple tracks and so that when you shut the power off and you turn it on, it comes back again. 
They're usually 8, 10, 12 bits resolution, sometimes maybe even 16. Okay. But this, this company specialized in extremely, extremely high end. When I tell you high end, what I'm talking about is 21, 22, 23, 24 bits of resolution. Ah. You think about that, 2 to the power of 24 minus 1. Okay. So they were the prime suppliers of encoders for pointing systems for the aerospace and defense market. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope, which is a low Earth orbit uh, telescope, meaning it's 150 miles away from Earth, orbiting mm -hmm. at about 17 to 18,000 miles per hour. The way it took the pictures is it first had to lock on to a guide star. Guide stars are bright stars called cepheid variables. And so that becomes like a reference point. And then while it's going at 17, 18,000 miles an hour orbiting the Earth, it scans a portion of the sky, collects those images, and keeps doing that. And then these images are fused. So you can understand the accuracy that is needed to be able to do that. Accuracy meaning in terms of pointing and in terms of stability. So we developed this encoder and motor-based system that worked in conjunction with the fine lock guidance systems where the gyros are sitting, the mechanical gyros. But ours was the optical encoders and the motor-based system that moved in azimuth and elevation to keep the Hubble pointed at the guide star while it uh -huh. was. So this was the star select. Now, if you'd ask me for your audience, well, what kind of accuracy does that mean? I can tell you in arc radians and so on, but most people won't understand. So let me just say, <laughs> if you take a US quarter dollar and hold it up in Los Angeles, and the Hubble Space Telescope is in, say, San Francisco, it would have to point at the center of that quarter dollar from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And, boggling, boggling. And, and here comes even more difficult specification. Okay. <laughs> if, because of the Van Allen radiation belts, mm -hmm. the stability of that pointing had to be such that over a 24-hour period, the beam could not move by more than the thickness of that quarter dollar. Absolutely extraordinary. The, it is. The, so this is the extremely slow motion servo dual axis servo control system that we developed for the Hubble Space Telescope. In 1990, it was launched. And till today, it is there performing exceptionally well. All the other problems with the Hubble Telescope, that was one of the, uh, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, uh, stable elements. It, it certainly was. The real problems with the Hubble, which I think was one of mankind's greatest achievements, was Indeed. the, you know, the, uh, the misalignment of the mirror. And when the whole world was pointing fingers at the United States, we sent our crew that actually went in there and in front of the world, fixed everything, and we started getting the images back. And our pointing system played a major role in that, in providing us with these remarkable images that have enhanced our understanding of the universe. Do you have 
a favorite image from Hubble? Uh, indeed, I do. It is those two tall pillars. I forget what they're called now. You remember the two really yes. tall pillars? They look something yes. like bananas. You know? And what people don't realize is that the, that the height of each of those is uh, one million light years. <coughs> From the bottom of that to go to the top of that, it will take light one million years. And every little finger in that picture, I forget what that nebula was called now, but uh, these, these, it is those, those twin towers, if you remember what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. And if you look at each of those little fingers, each finger would give birth to a star solar system orders of magnitude bigger than our solar system. <laughs> so, yes, that was my favorite. You look at that stuff, and it's just so vast. You literally, uh, you can you can say how big it is, and it's still almost meaningless because you, you just know, can't wrap your head around it. In spite of that, in spite of that, humanity just can't get along with each other. The egos come in the way. We don't realize that we've been blessed with tremendous intelligence, but yet at the same time, when you're looking at the magnitude of the universe, we are basically Irrelevant. I would not argue with that at all. Um, so we get to the point where uh, people have recognized that your contributions have been absolutely amazing over the years. Um, you get an IEEE Medal of Honor for it. Well, well deserved, in my opinion, obviously. But I can't help but wonder. Um, you already have an IEEE medal named after you. What's the, uh, how, how much bigger of a of an honor is the Medal of Honor? At this point, is this like the 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 second thing in your trophy case? No, I would say <laughs> that the the medal that was named after me was very gratifying and humbling because it was family and friends. Uh, that I triply approached, and they established the honor, uh, the, that medal in my honor for my 50 years of contributions to the profession, for philanthropy, and for mentoring the next generation of, of students. I triply Medal of Honor is actually a different thing. Mm -hmm. As you well know, that there is no Nobel Prize in engineering. Right. But in the field of electrical and electrical and electronic sciences and engineering. This is the world's highest honor. So if you were to say, what would be the Nobel Prize for electrical sciences, electrical and electronic sciences engineers, the IEEE Medal of Honor. Then you consider the kind of people that have received it. Claude Shannon, William Shockley, Britain, John Bardeen, Nyquist, Pierce, Darlington, Calman, I mean, you know, these are the giants that have, you know, transformed our things. So to receive this, I would say, is a very, very humbling experience for me, a most gratifying experience. And I would have to say that this is, in the trophy case, would probably be number one. Congratulations. Thank you. And I say this in a, in a very humble manner. I imagine you've thought a bit about the future. Um, what do you expect? What do you see um, 
in, in the future of engineering and, and the future of society? Great question. So let me start off with the following, uh, and I'll give you some caveats as we go along. Today, if you just take a look 30, 40 years ago, we have unbelievable technology at our disposal. The three most important examples of where our advancements have taken place are as follows, in my opinion. Low-cost miniaturized sensors utilizing MEMS and nanotechnology, which makes them ubiquitous in everyday applications in our world. Mm -hmm. Second, miniaturization and the increased density of memory chips, together with cloud computing for data storage, computation, data manipulation, and signal processing. And three is artificial intelligence and machine learning, which as we go forward, I will just address as artificial intelligence. Okay. To provide intelligence that can handle large amounts of data and perform previously unimagined tasks. I'll first give you a simple example where it's affecting us tremendously. An area of great importance where advances are being made as engineering strives to better human lives is human-centered technologies, enabled by converging engineering advances in sensing, computation, machine learning, data communications, all of which draw on the machine intelligence to help understand, support, and enhance our human experience. The challenge for us is to create technologies that work for everyone while enabling the tools that can illuminate the source of variability or difference of interest. And this is from medical applications to cultural applications to several things. But I think we'll see great advances here. But I think that if I were to be a person that's predicting the future, this is what I would say. Artificial intelligence will play a role in our lives that we cannot even imagine at this point. But I'd like to give you a little bit of a background, if I may, Brian. Sure, please. By way of background, artificial intelligence is more than 2,000 years in the making, dating back to the ancient Greeks. To protect his island from pirates, it is said that the first king of Crete received an unusual gift from the Greek god of invention and blacksmithing. A bronze robot known as Talos, T-A-L-O-S. Mm -hmm. Like clockwork, Talos was conceptually programmed to circle Crete thrice daily, throwing stones at nearby ships. <laughs> I'm giving you this from, I'll come to it and I'll give you the, the further details of an essay that myself and Professor Achuta Kadambi of UCLA wrote on this topic for that 50th anniversary issue that I talked to you about and we shall be sending to you. Artificial intelligence relates to form of execution that is demonstrated by machines that traditionally has been associated with humans or animals. Mm -hmm. The ancient robot Talos, for example, is defending an island, right? Mm -hmm. An action that is traditionally performed by humans. Likewise, the self-driving cars of today seek to replace a human driver. These examples, both ancient and modern, fall under the realm of what Professor Kadambi and I call 
weak AI or weak artificial intelligence that is pre-programmed to address tasks that would have been given to a human. Mm -hmm. The question that arises is this. If AI has been here all along, if artificial intelligence has been here along, from Talos to self-driving cars, where will the field go next? And this is what Professor Achira Kadambi and I wrote an essay on for that 50th anniversary issue. The untapped future of artificial intelligence, where revolutionary progress awaits, we believe, lies in strong artificial intelligence, strong AI, where machines act as a teacher to humans. When humans learn from such machines, it is possible to receive unexpected insights that yield a change in practice. And what do I mean by that? One future of strong AI lies in scientific discovery. And I think you'll enjoy this. A disruptive tool to unblock stagnated fields of science. In fact, this is a field where an AI must be used, we believe where a human can only apply the same known techniques in their arsenal, the unexpected insights from an AI might be the proverbial wiggle that is needed to get the wagon wheel out of the rut. <laughs> okay. To see the impact of AI on scientific discovery, let us consider, for example, the field of physics. While certainly a meaningful field that merits continued study, the last 30 years have seen little progress on fundamental questions like explaining the wave collapse. And the wave collapse in quantum mechanics is a wave function collapse that occurs when a wave function, initially in a superposition of several eigenstates, reduces to a single eigenstate due to interaction with the external world. This interaction we call an observation. Part of the challenge is that physical observations have become much more expensive to collect, the so-called big science, mm -hmm. and also difficult to interpret by humans. From Newton to Einstein, we have seen a remarkable jump in the complexity of observations required to validate a theory. The modern physicist, however, has something that neither Einstein nor Newton had, ever-increasing computational power. This motivates a new paradigm for physics, which we refer to as artificial physics. The artificial physicist could operate in a way that is almost contradictory to a human, where a human can test a small set of curated theories on a sparse set of data. A machine can test a huge number of combinatorial possibilities on massive data sets. It is certainly a radical change in approach, but hopefully one that can yield radical change in results. For example, consider a computer program that can rediscover Einstein's famous equations. We have not yet observed a technology that can automatically intuit these equations. One of the challenges is that Einstein's equations are human interpretable construct. But a solution with AI might build upon in symbolic equation generation. However, we believe that the road ahead to scientific discovery is not easy. For the moment, human engineers and computer sciences will have to create the artificial physicists. 
we will struggle with questions of interpretability. If the artificial physicist were to be based on a deep neural network, how does one enforce human interpretability? In other words, what I'm saying is, how does the output of the artificial physicist guarantee an output equation that meaningfully maps to what humans can interpret? The future of AI, we believe, lies in grappling with these nuanced challenges. There are multiple frontiers that could be explored. A first frontier lies in the interpretability. If a machine is to teach humans new insights, both partners will speak the same language. Imagine if a hybrid team could be formed where two physicists work together. One is an artificial intelligence, an AI, the other is real. A second frontier relates to novel algorithms and architectures to implement AI. Today, neural networks, what we call deep learning, mm -hmm. is the dominant approach to implementing weak AI. However, such methods are pre-programmed rather than self-thinking. Yet, a third frontier of AI lies in unblocking traditional fields, not just physics, but chemistry, medicine, and engineering. And I might point out that the word choice of unblocking, in quotes, is deliberate. It is one thing to use AI as a tool to augment human performance in a field, much as computers augment the author searching for a word definition. It is, however, entirely different to have the AI drive the research field in unexpected and meaningful directions. An example of unblocking in action can be found in the optical sciences. Mm -hmm. Progress in optical design long held that Fourier-coded apertures were optimal. With the advent of AI, optical scientists have been successfully using AI algorithms to create unexpected aperture masks that depart from, yet also outperform Fourier masks. In a nutshell, what I'm trying to say, I'll try to summarize with this particular statement. For thousands of years, humans have been teaching AI to do our chores. It might be time that we let AI teach us how to innovate in new and unexpected ways. <laughs> I hope that was not too long. It was not too long. Um, I've uh, what you just described. Um, I've used this analogy before on this podcast a few times, um, and, and it never stops being uh, appropriate in different places. I think. Um, years and years ago, when when Deep Blue uh, uh, beat the chess master Gary Kasparov, yes. After that, um, Kasparov uh, actually became excited by the possibilities of of a human chess master working with a computer. Um, I've heard attributed to him. Uh, that he coined the term a centaur, something that's half this, half that, yes. a half human, half computer. Yes. And and in it's it's become, I understand, um, a, a common holding in in the chess area that a chess centaur will be a human, any human grandmaster alone, or any chess computer alone. Um, the the combination of of sheer computational power um, comes up with combinations uh, a human might not 
arrive at on their own. And it takes the human to understand what the ramifications might be. Um, it sounds as if that's somewhat analogous to what you envision. I think um, you're right, Brian. You're very right. And you've, you've yeah. quoted it very, you described it very eloquently by giving uh, that example of Kasparov and uh, Deep Blue. Very, mm -hmm. uh, very true. You're, you're absolutely right on the money. Uh, so, so um, fascinating. So, so you're optimistic, yes? I am very optimistic. I, I also believe that, you know, there are a lot of skeptics in this world, and they, they should be. Anything, any progress that we make in this world, you know, depends on whose hands it is used. Mm. You know, a knife can be used for chopping onions and, and cutting food or for killing somebody. Uh, vice versa, we've seen, you know, abuse of technology. So these are things that we have to uh, be cognizant of. And as AI starts to develop and starts becoming more human in its uh, thinking capabilities, uh, I think our young students, the next generation is going to have to be very uh, properly taught about uh, ethics, uh, mm. not, just, not just from religious and moral standpoints, but also ethics from the standpoint of uh, dealing with this form of intelligence and uh, these capabilities that you have so that it's for the benefit of society and that it is uh, not used for uh, inappropriate tasks. A tool is neither good nor bad. It's who's using it, right? So well said. So well said. Professor, thank you so much for your time today. It was a truly enjoyable and illuminating conversation. Our guest today was Asad Madni, the 2022 IEEE Medal of Honor recipient. If I understood Madney correctly, he was referring to a photo from the Hubble telescope that depicts what astronomers call a star-forming nursery. This one has been named free-floating, evaporating, gaseous globules, or FREGS. The image is the one we used on this podcast episode's webpage. The source is NASA. And that concludes another episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available in the places one tends to go for other podcasts, namely iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you go to our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we've mentioned and other resources. You'll also find our other podcasts. Embedded Edge is about embedded technologies. The host is Nitin Dodd. We also have the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with Sally Ward-Foxton. The Power Up Podcast is about power electronics. Your host is Maurizio Paolo Emilio. There's a new episode of Power Up this week. The nav bar across the top of our homepage has a link for our podcasts. Find it there. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.